If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you are a first-time guest with us here today, we're so thankful that you're here. There is a Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. Think of nothing greater to give than a copy of God's Word. Well, we come today to the last Sunday of another year, and I want to express to each one of you how thankful that I am that we have been able to have this many Sundays together, together around God's Word, to be stretched and molded into the likeness of Christ. I've been encouraged in our time uh, considering 1 John and all that it teaches us. It's an incredibly convicting letter. It's also an incredible comfort to those of us who are in Christ. It's an incredible gift that we have Sunday after Sunday to come and to consider what God has revealed through His apostles and prophets. And we say with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things of your law and the sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. None of us have wisdom apart from God. We all depend upon the Word of God that we might understand our identity in Christ and how to live our lives before Him. So John has told us wonderful things. He has poured out his heart in these words. And some people have a difficult time. I've explained to you it is true that there are many different commentators with many different views on for John's first letter here because he seems to go in uh, different rabbit trails. But really, as, you, as we've started to flesh out this, this letter and to work through it slowly, we have seen that John actually has a consistent, cohesive message for us. He has told us, pointed us, and aimed us in the direction of the love that the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called, he begins with chapter 3, with that we should be called children of God. And so we are, in spite of who we are, in spite of our sin, in spite of our heritage, in spite of our own intellectual abilities, we are children of God now. And he goes on to say what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not sanctified completely yet. We're not glorified. We don't even conceive of what God will finally do with us in glory. But we do know this, that when we see Him, we will be like Him. We will be molded completely in the image of Christ. And I don't think that there's a greater encouragement in all of Scripture than that reality. And we are God's children now, that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and that one day we will be perfected in the sight of Christ. We will be like Him. We've been given this great promise that we are children of God, and John says that if this is true, then there will be evidences in our lives. We will be individuals who, whose lives are marked exceedingly by being individuals who keep the commandments that God has laid out in Scripture. Verse 7. In verse 14, he goes on to explain to us that we will be lovers of the body of Christ, that we will enjoy fellowship with believers, with Christians, that we will take seriously the command to gather together and to understand His Word and to not only understand in a 
theological, theoretical manner, but we will actually love each other in actions uh, that we, we have towards one another. And then in verse 24, he says that um, the final proof of our being in Christ, of being called children of God, is that we have received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? We answered this last week. Well, we become aware of a power at work in our lives. We become aware of a reality that we are being sanctified moment by moment, week in and week out, that God is at work in our lives, molding us into the image of Christ in a way that we know is not entirely of ourselves. Our appetites begin to change when we're filled with the Spirit of God. It's no longer, so much of Christianity today is about a self-centered view. Well, I want to go to a church that does this for me. I want a church that has a community that I want. I want a church that has the type of preaching that I want. I want music that really stirs me. And we neglect to realize that those are just worldly religious appetites. But in fact, if we're filled with the Spirit of God, our appetite becomes we want to know the Word of God. We want to know the true and living God. We want to turn from our sin and glorify God together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, we come to this reality in the life of every true believer. We are convicted of our sin. When we're rebuked and admonished, when the Word of God is lifted before us, we don't fight against it. We don't try to justify ourselves. We say with the prophet Isaiah, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I I need the grace of Almighty God. And, And we come to a point where we realize we are utterly dependent upon God. We say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Spirit-filled people are individuals that are convicted of their sin and completely dependent upon the Spirit that dwells within them. So with that in mind, if you would stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, dear ones, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So is this is the word of the Lord to you and I. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come today asking that you would write these simple truths on all of our hearts that we would become 
committed discerners of your word, that we would in fact be obedient to this call to test, to try the spirits, the teachers in our own age. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As we come to this new chapter in the Bible, in uh, 1 John, we remember the two main driving points of this letter. One, John is telling us that we as children of God have fellowship with God the Father and with God the Son, that our only hope for having true joy in the world is by a deep and abiding relationship with the living God. We know that the entire world, John says, lies in the power of the evil one. I promise that I will only say that maybe a hundred more times before we get to the end of First John. I may go over that quota. We know that that's a reality. It's a bedrock key verse of what John is teaching here. And we know that in a world like that, that is so dark, that is so marred by unrighteousness and by worldly religion, the only true hope for lasting joy is genuine fellowship with God. That is one guiding truth, that that we have fellowship with God. The other is that we are children of God now. That there will not be a day when we are more children of God than we are at this very moment. And we are only children of God because of the love of the Father. So we are. Here we are, in spite of all that we are, children of Almighty God. And those are the two regulating principles of this letter to this point. These two main themes dominate the letter all the way through verse 6 of our text today. And we must have that in our memory as we press on. John deals with the condition we have, have in being children of God. We must remember that if we are to fare well, well in the world, in the power that, which is in the power of the evil one, that we must remember we are children of God and that we have fellowship with Him. Then nothing else really measures up to those two grand realities. And as we experience the pains of life, the disappointments that come, we can have genuine joy in being sons and daughters of the living God and having fellowship with Him. Now, John has been exhorting us that these are tests of our faith, that if we genuinely are children of God, it will come out in our living. We will seek to abide by the commandments that God has given us. And we're not talking about earning God's favor by, by keeping a set of rules. We're talking about guarding commands, keeping them close to us, living in a way that we honor God, seeking to love the body well, and acknowledging that His Spirit is at work Within us. But not only are these tests, they're also exhortations. They're also uh, encouragements that if these things are present in your life, remember, rest on the fact that you are children of God. And those things are consistent in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, that we must guard the commandments of God. That, that is in the beginning of chapter 1. That we must love one another in the body of Christ. That also is there. And that we must beware of false teaching. Those three things continue to come up in this letter. And then again in chapter 3 he goes on to sonship. And that we again must obey the word of God. Love the church. And have the spirit. 
First John chapter 3 then ends where we ended last week in verse 24. Whoever keeps His commandment comes back to that point. Abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now what is incredible then, as we begin to turn to chapter 4, is this reality. That there is perfect symmetry and balance in the two verses that adjoin one another. In verse 24 and verse 1, there is perfect balance. We have this propensity, don't we, in our human lives to fall off in one error or the other. To not be balanced. To not have a view that gives understanding to part of the truth. Uh, Someone once said, human reason is like a drunken man on horseback. You set him up on one side and he tumbles over the other. We can come to understand and grasp part of the truth that the apostles and prophets are teaching us, but we have this tendency when we come to an understanding of that truth just to go over on the other side. And to neglect part of what the Word of God teaches. And so what we have here in verse 1 is no mere human statement. He has said in verse 24, By this we know that He, ab- that he abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. But then there is this perfect symmetry and balance in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, many false teachers have gone out into the world. We must have balance and symmetry in our Christian life if we are to live our Christian lives well. Well, What John has been dealing with so far is our experience in the body. Are we really individuals who are experiencing obedience to the Word of God and fellowship with one another and genuine love for one another? Is that your experience? He also points to the Spirit. That the Spirit must be doing this work within you. That's another component of the truth that He lays before us. And then finally... He teaches us, He tells us to beware of false teachers, of false doctrines. So all of these things are part of what John is laying out before us if we are to have true joy and fellowship with God. The problem is what John is telling us, that many false teachers have gone out into the world. Many have gone out into the world who will not Seek the whole counsel of God, but will fixate on one particular point and just camp there. And generally, what happens when we take one particular point in the text and we live on only that point, we end up neglecting what is really defined in that one point. This has been the reality throughout the church age. We, we come to excesses and instead of addressing the excess we cut out a particular point of scripture altogether this has sadly been the case in some circles of baptist belief as we come into the last century and we see the abuses in the charismatic movement then in some in some spheres we have begun to neglect teaching robust doctrine about the Spirit of God and about what He does. 
Now, the right thing to do is not to neglect teaching about the Spirit of God. It's not to shy away from talking about the Holy Spirit because we know that that's one of the evidences by which we are confirmed as called children of God. So we shouldn't shy away from teaching clearly everything that the Bible talks about in relation to what the Spirit has done for the church throughout the ages. We can't... We can't meet excesses by being excessively um, choosy in dealing with the text. Now this has happened also when the church has fallen into kind of a doctrinal dryness. Uh, when individuals come in and the only thing that matters is doctrine. The Spirit is not as much uh, of an emphasis or importance. And your experience as a Christian doesn't matter. All that matters is doctrine. And if we can have a perfect system and, and we have perfect teaching, then everything else will be okay. It, the only thing that matters is doctrine. And what happens, people come into the church during those times, during those seasons of the, of the church, church's life, and they go, boy, I really think that something is missing here. And they begin to search the scriptures and they find these passages dealing with the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does for the church. And inevitably, the difficulty is those individuals are, fall off the other side of the horse. They become so enamored with particular sections of scripture as they relate to the Spirit of God and they force things into the meaning of the text that really aren't there. And what ends up happening is they neglect doctrine because they have this pre preoccupation with experience and with the working of the Holy Spirit. And they say, you know, we really don't need doctrine. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And if we feel good about it, if our experience tells us it's right, if we have done this as a church movement, then it must be of God. But friends, the Spirit is the one who inspired a book that is completely doctrinal in its composition. And so there must be symmetry in all of these things. There must be an understanding that real genuine conversion, being born again, being a child of God, brings us to an experience that we can relate to one another. And that is, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, but that Spirit doesn't push us in the direction of subjective judgment according to our feelings. The Spirit actually, when He's really at work, leads us to clear doctrine to an understanding of what the Bible teaches and of course the spirit is doing that throughout our lives not none of us grow at the same rate and so we have to be patient with one another now here we see that very thing we we see that it's not only experience it's not only the spirit that matters it does matter, and by this we know that He abides in us, that we have this experience of being in Christ by the Spirit whom He has given us. That is a reality, and we cannot dull that at all. We talked last week about Acts chapter 2 and the giving of the giftings of tongues in the early church and, and what that meant, that people were able to hear in their native language from people who did not speak their native language. And, and what a marvelous thing and what a marvelous uh, uh, seal that was or sign that the Word of God and this apostolic message was true. And we shouldn't shy away that that is something that God has done. I, I get from time to time charismatic believers that will come and say, do you believe in speaking in tongues? I, I don't have that particular spiritual gifting in my life. 
But I do believe that that is a gifting that God has poured out in the church at particular times. Now, I'm not going to get into the argument today about whether or not that gifting continues on or not. But what I will say is this. It's clear in Acts chapter 2 that those gifts were given to signify that the apostles' message was true, was accurate, was actually from God. And so we shouldn't neglect those realities. But he goes on here in verse 1 to say, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Test those who are teaching to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, it is both spirit and sound doctrine that matter. If our experience is to be what God would have it to be, those things matter. We, we see this in the letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. These individuals had become so preoccupied with their individual giftings, with what the Spirit had given them, that they neglected to see the fuller picture, that their giftings weren't the point, they were a means to an end, and that was the edification of the body of Christ and the clear preaching and teaching of the apostolic message. So Paul writes here to, in, in, in 1 Corinthians to clear up and to emphasize that love in the body of Christ is a genuine gift of God. It is an important gift of God. And that is in fact exactly what John is emphasizing here. That we are to obey the commands of God. That we are to love one another. And if those things are true, we can be sure that we have the Spirit of God within us. Some might say, well then, truth doesn't matter as long as we love one another. As long as we come in here and we have potlucks and fellowships and we shake hands and we like each other and we get along and we have the same views on some things, then everything else doesn't matter. Then these doctrinal arguments, these doctrinal positions do not ultimately matter. And John stands this morning And looks that kind of thinking straight in the face and says, Beloved, dear ones, children, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You may have a sensation and experience of loving one another. You may think that you're you're obeying, but friends, if you don't give credence, if if you don't think through doctrinally the teaching of the individuals that you are allowing to lead, you can wind up in a very dangerous place. See, this entire letter is written with the background of the Gnostics who claim to have special knowledge or special revelation of from God. These were individuals who had crept into the church, who, who claimed to be believers, who would affirm most of the foundational doctrines about uh, Christ and about God, but they had come unmoored from the reality of the apostolic message. The real problem for the Gnostics is that they were teaching from their own seat of knowledge and not from what God had revealed to them. They were individuals who are teaching that that the material part of us really doesn't matter because it's evil and it's only the immaterial, the spiritual component that matters. Well, friends, John writes here and says, no, this is an abuse of the teaching of who God is. And part of where this works out in the downstream is it's an attack on the divinity of Christ and upon who He is and that He actually came in the flesh bodily. 
And so there begins here a great, in the the first century, a great fight for the faith. Uh, John here is contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and, And here's what we can be assured of. If the Spirit of God wrote these words so that John would contend for truth, and John is saying it is the same Spirit that gives you confirmation that you are in fact a believer, then the Spirit that resides in you will not be a Spirit that that really hinges upon whether or not you have warm and fuzzy feelings on Sunday morning. The Spirit that you have residing within you will be a Spirit that cries out for truth. I want to know the truth. I want to know what the Bible is teaching. I want to know what God has spoken through His apostles and prophets. That will be our primary concern. Ultimately, what we find in this passage is a fight for apostolic authority. Is is the church going to listen to all of the voices in the world or is the church going to listen to the Word of God? And my friends, this isn't a, a fight for the first century only. This is a fight that has continued all throughout the church age. Every generation has to face this question. What are we going to put at the center of our gathering? Are we going to put popes and councils and all of those things? Are we going to put man there with all of his academic ideas and his understanding of the world and what he wants and what he thinks the problem is? Or are we going to put the Word of God at the center of everything that we do and have someone say, thus saith the Lord? That has always been the issue. And when we begin to have this this spirit in the church that says, well, the way I feel matters the most, then I promise you the outworking of that is what God says matters the least. We have to be rooted in what God says. Allow the text, allow the apostles and the prophets to say what they have to say because it is God who has revealed to them the things that they have written. And what we find here is that the apostles are not writing in a bent, as the Satan has lied to us, to rob us of joy, to rob us of life, to rob us of anything that is good. But in fact, he has inspired the apostles and prophets to write to sinners like you and I for our fellowship with him and our joy. And their writing is perfectly clear and balanced. But what we do is we tend to become lopsided and partisan on particular fine issues of the text. We come to the Word of God and we say, well, this is who I am, and we throw a label on it, and we neglect to allow the Word of God to have authority over our lives. We come and we say, well, we're going to be a doctrinal church. We're going to preach good, solid doctrine. I don't want any of that charismatic nonsense. I don't want any charismatic nonsense either. But I don't want that kind of attitude to push away particular points of the text and points of the Scriptures where we neglect the reality that the Spirit of God is the one who ultimately is building the church for the glory of God. We don't want to neglect the working of the Spirit in such a way that we identify the reality that when the Spirit of God is at work and He leads us into sound doctrine, sorry, I can speak, um, sound doctrine, that then it issues out in a genuine experience where we love one another as we seek in an increasing fashion to obey the Word of God. 
You see, when we come to this question, is it doctrine, experience, or the Spirit that matter? Our answer must be simply yes. All of them matter. But see, we live in a time where experience and I would argue a mischaracterization of the Holy Spirit are overemphasized in most churches. Most churches will hold to views of the Spirit that are poorly defined, that are not theologically guided, and experiences that are not congruent with the Word of God. And so the church has gone wrong in that direction. But the wrong thing to do would be to come and to decide we're not going to deal with those things at all. What we need to do is come to the text and deal honestly and define clearly what God has revealed about His Spirit and how He works in our lives. Not to neglect part of what He is teaching. You see, if we're going to be biblical Christians, we are often going to find ourselves in this interesting position. I remember early on coming here and realizing if I teach the the Bible in its fullness, there's going to be some people that get ticked off. Amen. That's going to happen. Because the God that they're talking about, that they conceive of in conversations that I'm hearing about, is not the God that is spoken in the Bible. And I saw that group, and I saw some of that coming. But then this oddity happened, and that, that was... There's an entirely different group of people that get ticked off that I didn't see coming. And this is true in the life of the church over and over and over. If we're going to be well balanced, we tend to tick everybody off. Because here's the reality. We're not just here to lift up some theological banner or hold to some school of thought. Although, friends, we are blessed of God to be born in the age that we are. We are downstream of so much good theology and so much good teaching. And to say, listen, to say that the teaching that we can find in church history doesn't matter is absolutely foolish. Because we, what we will wind up doing in neglecting the teaching that has been handed to us is we will just repeat the errors that have already happened and have already been addressed. But our, 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 the point of this is that our, our intention is not merely to hold on to labels and all of those things. Our intention as a church should be to come under the authority of the Word of God, believing what God would have us to believe, empowered and indwelled by the Spirit of God to proclaim this message and experiencing the fellowship and joy that God has really called us to. And to do that, we're going to have to submit ourselves to the fullness of the Word of God. You know, this whole reality of, of making different groups mad, again, has been a, a reality throughout church history. If you look back to the Reformation, you find Luther, and, and, and people think that Luther, Luther had his own um, errors, I would say, his own heterodox positions. Uh, but Luther really took issue with Tetzel and, and the sale of indulgences and all of these things. So we know that he, most of us are aware, he pinned these 95 theses and he nailed them at the castle door at Wittenberg and, and uh, some people have this view that he wanted, to, he wanted to break off from the Catholic Church. That really wasn't his desire. He, he thought, I am seeing these things clearly. God has revealed to me in Scripture the just shall live by faith, that our salvation is not through works, it's not from popes, it's not by counsel, it is by grace alone. And if I just write this out and nail it to a door, and these other priests who are learned and understand the original languages, they see that, 
they're naturally going to be as joyful as I am. Oh, contrary. Fast forward to the Diet of Worms and you have the emperor there and a whole bunch of ticked off theologians telling him to recant. He doesn't recant. Thank God he doesn't. And so then we, we go on a little bit further and what we find actually is that the debate and battle's not over. Uh, there's a, a, another individual, Karl Stock, who uh, after the Reformation has happened is this iconoclast type individual who goes about the church busting all of the windows, stained glass windows out of churches and, and destroying all of the artwork because in his view that was idolatry. We should never allow artwork into the church because the Catholic church has abused artwork and they have lifted these things up as vain idols and so we can't have that. And Luther goes, what are you doing? The issue, and I'm not going to get into this, in the second commandment isn't that we can't have art, it's that we can't idolize images of, 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 of God. And so he pushes back there. Again, just one, one picture of extremes. The, the Catholics on one side idolizing all of these sculptures and relics and all of those things, and then other individuals as they break away and realize that that's wrong, then going and destroying everything. We find the same reality if we lean into Puritan history and we see the, the one group of, that eventually becomes known as the Quakers, individuals who believed of, of, of the inner light and they were called Quakers because they trembled, they shook, there was an outward manifestation they believed of the working of the Spirit um, and, and their view was that we need to trust in our inner light, uh, we, need to re, we need to rest in what we feel. In, in what we can perceive in our being. And what ended up with that group, the Quakers, is that the Word of God became very marginalized. But then we also find at the same time that there were individuals who were just the intellectual elites, legalists. They were the kind of people who were in the book all the time, but they gave no credence and no credibility to this, the working of the Spirit, to the reality that that, that God is at work in the church supernaturally and it's not all doctrinal. And in the middle of all of those characters in Puritanism, you'll find individuals like John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, uh, William Perkins. And what you find in the writing of these men is that they come, and they're not perfect men, but they come submitting their understanding of who God is to the entire counsel of God. And you know what happens when they do that? They tick off both sides. And they become ostracized and outcast. But you know what they have in being ostracized and outcast? The word of the living God and a community where they're, they're actually loved and where they actually grow in honoring God in all that they do. You see, we need to understand the fullness of the biblical record. The Spirit is essential. Experience is vital. But truth and definition and doctrine and dogma are equally vital in our lives. Experience which is not based solidly upon truth and upon doctrine, I promise you, is dangerous. Because it's nothing more than your subjective opinion. This is why theology matters so very much. The Spirit matters. Yes. But we must not miss that the Spirit aims us at clear theology. And this is what John is calling us to here in this first verse. And we ask the question, well, why do people refuse theology? Well, I'm just going to be candid with you this morning. Maybe you're different. 
But we tend to be lazy. We tend to just want to believe what we want to believe and be left alone. Don't upset the apple cart. We want what comes easy. And here's the reality. Testing the spirits isn't easy. For individuals who have lived their lives in in systems of theology, it's not easy to look at their pastor on Sunday morning and go, he's not teaching what this text means. It's not easy to to break away from what your mama told you and what your grandmama told you and, and what you have been taught your entire life. It's not easy. We also throw into all of that mix that it's just not easy in the human sense. We live after the Enlightenment where we have people like Immanuel Kant who broke on the scene and said, you know what, you can throw away all of the confessions, all of the creeds, you can throw away all of the teaching of the church, you can come to your own conclusion about the truth, you don't need anyone else. And in a certain sense, there's some truth to that. It's truthy, but it's not the truth. God has given His pastors and his teachers all throughout the centuries that we might understand the word of God clearly you see all of church history all of the new testament lay before us this reality that Christians people who are genuine genuinely born again will will be inevitably people who pursue clear sound doctrine so John writes beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God why For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now we've already learned this from Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle, Paul says, against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The reason that we are called to test the spirits, the reason we are called to do theology, the reason that we are called to pursue the truth is because this world lies in the power of the evil one. And he has set up false prophets. He has set up people who will say that they love Jesus, but what they really want is to inject their political ideology into the church or their humanistic rationale or their particular religion. And they're not concerned with declaring to the saints the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So we have to be concerned about not only our experience, but about the truth and error. And as we begin to be concerned about that, we're going to have to add definitions. And as soon as we start doing that, we are neck deep in theology. And we shouldn't ever do that apart from the work of the Spirit. We shouldn't ever do that without submitting ourselves to prayer, asking God to bless our efforts. But friends, we must pursue clear, erudite theology. You see, here the command is to test the teaching of individual Persons, there, there were these Gnostic heretics who had gone out teaching false doctrine and Paul has this anxiety that people are going to leave the church and they're going to pursue what they feel is right all the while those feelings are wrong. Your pastor has a similar anxiety. So we need to understand that there is truth and there is error. And I believe as we come to this, we also need to understand so we don't bite and devour one another, that there is a spectrum of truth and error, that there are these categories. We all have what are called convictions. We have particular preferences. We have things that our, our conscience tells us are right or wrong, and yet we might not find them specifically in the Word of God. Those are called convictions. There are things like whether or not we should take a, 
well, most recently, whether or not we should take a, a vaccine. That's a conviction. Um, whether or not we should use a particular version of Scripture, that's a conviction. And then we move on from those convictions and we can find that there are varying views on particular passages of Scripture. And that is uh, that if someone has a, a, a position that is other than what has normally been believed, that is called a heterodox position, an other opinion about a particular teaching. And it's not necessarily, heterodox opinions are not necessarily associated with primary doctrines that divide believers from non-believers, but maybe on a secondary, tertiary issue, you have these heterodox positions about different things. And so we don't want to put those in the same category as what John is dealing with here. And then we have heresy. Heresy is a departure from teaching that is pivotal for a right understanding of what it means to be a called child of God. And heresy ultimately leads to apostasy, a departure from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the question that we must ask is, do teachers who are called of God, listen to this question, do teachers who are called of God ever fall into error? Do pastors who God actually has called ever make mistakes and fall into heterodoxy, errors, and even at times begin to slip into heresy? Now, to answer this question, I want to take you to the Bible, because it's the only appropriate place for me to take you to answer the question. You remember, you remember Peter? Peter was this individual who, was, without a doubt, was one of the greatest in the company of the apostles. He was an old disciple. He was a disciple who had particular advantages and pr- privileges. He had been uh, a constant companion of Christ. He had, he had heard the Lord preach. He had seen him work miracles. He had enjoyed the benefits. Uh, of private teaching with Jesus. He had been numbered among the Lord's intimate friends and he had gone out and um, ministered alongside of Christ. He was the first apostle to be given the keys to the kingdom. The, The Catholic Church to this day says, Peter is our man. He is the first pope. And they pride themselves on this reality. Maybe they won't after we get done. He was the one who first opened the door of faith of the gospel to the Jews by preaching to them on the day of Pentecost. He was the first to open the door of faith to the Gentiles by preaching in the house of Cornelius. This was a man who God used greatly. God had called him. If you want to, turn to Galatians chapter 2 with me. Beginning in verse 11, we find this interaction between Paul and Peter. Paul is memorializing here before the church. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here we have in this text, the Apostle Peter making a very grave error. And Paul calls him on it. And this wasn't the only time. 
This wasn't a one-off. I mean, we're talking about Peter, the one who looked at Jesus as Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. And Peter says, far be it from you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. Don't you think that's an error? And here, after he's been preaching and teaching for years, an old man, and Paul has to come and he admonishes him to his face, Peter, you're wrong. Can we answer the question of whether or not genuinely called men of God can make errors? The answer has to clearly be yes. Because we find that so here. And what is this meant to teach us? It's meant to teach us that even the apostles themselves, when not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when not indwelled by the working of the Spirit of Almighty God, when not upheld by the grace of God, are prone to error. How can we ever refute the doctrine of total depravity when the apostles themselves, acting on their own, slipped into error? Unless God holds us up by grace, we will all sure find ourselves in heresy and apostasy. True Christians then, beloved, are converted, justified, and sanctified. They are living members of Christ's body, beloved children of God, heirs of eternal life. They are elect, chosen, called, kept unto salvation, but they are not infallible. And we need to keep that in our minds, least we we be arrogant. Peter here was at least in his, in, in his bowing the knee to these Judaizers and, 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 and going along with them so that he wouldn't upset them. He was at least heterodox. But I think there's a good case that can be made that he was tiptoeing in heresy because if you pick up in verse 15 in Galatians chapter 2 where we just left off, you find the Apostle Paul reinforcing the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the reason why Paul wasn't going to correct Peter silently to the side was because he had made this great public blunder. And he wanted to point out to him Peter, the way you are living could misconstrue the gospel to these people that they might believe that our salvation is dependent upon what these Judaizers are teaching and what we are going to teach for the remainder of the time that God gives us is that justification is by faith alone. So he couldn't just, he couldn't just let it go because this was heresy. This would have led to great harm in the body. What's going on here in the text that we're dealing with is apostasy. It's clear heresy. It's Gnostic individuals who have taught things inside the church and are drawing people away that will make it, uh, that will undermine the, uh, the message of the gospel, the message of salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so then we have to come to this question. Well, what makes the difference between apostles and false teachers? What, what is the difference between Peter when he erred and the false teachers that John is writing about here in chapter 4? Can we really know the difference? Can we ever come to understand what really separates them? Because both are obviously errant at points. I think we can know. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Now we have received not a spirit of the world, but a spirit of, uh, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. 
The deciding difference between the false teachers and the apostles is that one had the gifting of the Spirit. One was actually indwelled by the Spirit of God, commissioned of God, and sent by God, and the others weren't. So how do we test? How do we know? How do we, if we're going to adhere to this beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. If we're going to live under that text and actually test the spirits, how do we do that? Well, first we're going to do that by understanding dangerous tests, things that we shouldn't do. One is we do not use manifestations of spiritual giftings as the, tech, as the test. That's not what John is pointing to here. The, 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 the spiritual giftings can be counterfeited. Some say in the past 50, 100 years have taught that if a man is really called to preach, and some would even take this as far to say, which I think is absolutely heretical, if you are a Christian, that you have to speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then God has not called you. And if you don't speak in tongues for some groups, then God has not saved you. The problem is, speaking in tongues promise you Speak to anybody that comes from the charismatic movement. Tongues can be counterfeited. They, they can be something that, that is just done outwardly, but it's actually not a manifestation of what the Spirit is doing. We also don't use miracles. We don't look at individuals who, who heal people because that can be counterfeited. Individuals in religious settings can plant people in the audience and pretend to heal them and it's not really healing at all, it's just theatrics. We also don't take enthusiasm as a test. Passion is not a bad thing in the declaration of the Word of God, but it's not the only thing. There are many people who are passionate about what they teach, but they've never been called of God. We also don't take experience to be the litmus test. People will come into the church and say, well, I had a vision, I had a dream. God has revealed this truth to me. I had this experience, and so you can't refute it. But again, all of those things can be counterfeit. They can, they can be drummed up. And what winds up happening is if we allow those things to be the litmus test, we end up putting ourselves under the authority of religious people and not under the authority of the Word of God. So how can we make the distinction between a true and false teacher? How does John know the difference between Peter and the Gnostics who are teaching this heresy? Well, there's one primary test. If you want to know how to test the spirits, you can take a deep sigh of relief that you don't have to take a bunch of notes. Because there's really one test. Now there's an argument that could be made that the qualifications for elders should be part of the equation, but I think that even those things can be counterfeited. So what is the singular test that we should run to? The singular test is this. Whether or not what the individual teaches accords with what, with what the apostles and prophets taught. Simply stated, we test the spirits by taking everything that someone teaches us back to the Word of God. We submit everything that is taught from this pulpit. You do me a grave injustice by just receiving everything I have to say without any discernment. One of the greatest kindnesses that men in this church have done for me is to come and say, Jay, I think you missed this. Jay, I think you misspoke here. Because it allows me to see with greater clarity what the text is actually saying. And what we find, if you turn with me to verse 6, we really find John being very clear about this reality that the apostles are the authority. We are from God. That's a pretty bold statement. 
He's saying, look, these other people, they're not. But we, the apostles, the prophets that God has spoken to, we're from God. So if they give you good experiences and healing services and all of the things that you desire, great. You just need to know they're not of God. And that creates a very big problem. It goes on, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever knows God, it's not listening to Jay, it's not listening to the preacher in 2021, it's listening to the apostles and prophets, to the Word of God. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The measuring stick for whether or not someone is truly called of God or not is this. They will submit to the Word of God. The one test that can truly show whether a person is sent from God or not is does their teaching conform to the teaching of the apostles? And some of you are going to say, yeah, but I thought you just said that the apostles err. That they've made mistakes. Well, they did in their own strength in their own day and age. But the words that God inspired in this book are not their error because these words were not given by Peter or John or Paul. They were given by God Himself. In fact, we see in the narrative of Galatians chapter 2 the very thing that I'm telling you this morning. Paul, I'm sure, had affection for Peter and all of the suffering that they had in establishing that first church. But there when he sees Peter making this grave error that would undermine the faith of the saints, he doesn't, he doesn't mess around with it. He goes straight to him and he says, brother, you're wrong. You need to repent. You need to turn back. And you need to live under the teaching of the apostles, what God has revealed to us. And what does Peter do? Peter submits himself as an apostle to the apostles. That is, that is the test. So the test in the end isn't whether or not Jay or Braxton may err at some point. It's not whether or not we may have some different theological viewpoints and call each other heterodox at some points. The, the, the question is, are we all seeking to submit ourselves to the Word of God when confronted? And so then there's this question. So is this only something that Braxton and Jay and Bill and the other Sunday school teachers have to do? Does this passage teach us? Beloved Sunday school teachers, beloved pastors, beloved missionaries, test the spirits of God. Is that what this says? No. Beloved. If you're a called child of God, everyone in this room who belongs to God through the working of Christ is responsible for testing the spirits, for being in the Word, for trying what is taught. So you might ask this question, well, Jay, then why is there so much variation in teaching in the church? Well, the first reason I think is self-evident. We're all sinners. And what works out of us being sinners is that we're lazy. And quite frankly, the reason that there's so much variation in the uh, church today is I believe, and I mean this kindly, I believe that we, we refuse categorically to submit our lives to this one verse. To verse 1. We refuse to test the spirits. Say on, preacher. Do your job. Or we go out and we live in the day and age that we were warned of that there will be this day where people will have itching ears and they'll find teachers that suit their own passions. 
We live in that day. We don't try the spirits. But I think the greatest reason is this. Pride. You know what's really unsettling about testing spirits? Your own spirit gets tested too. You come face to face with the living God and you find out, man, I was wrong. Dallas has a story about that, don't you, brother? Coming to an understanding of how God saved you. And Dallas has shared the story. I'm sorry if I'm not supposed to use it publicly. Oops. Um, Dallas has a friend who consistently was trying to show him the truth that our salvation is by grace alone. And uh, Dallas, man, I'm going to pull my Bible. I'm going to fix this sucker. I'm going I'm to help him come back into the fold. And so he starts searching the Scripture. And, and what happens is our brother comes to an understanding. Oh my goodness, my salvation really is by grace alone. And this brother was right. So he goes back and he tells the brother. That individual was pretty frustrated because this individual, it took him years to struggle with the text and come to an understanding of the truth. And it took Dallas a couple of weeks and he was done. <laughs> and so it is with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. He's building his church in his own time for his own glory according to his own plan. We must be faithful, beloved, to speak truth to one another. We must be humble. We, we must come to the Word of God Almost expecting to be reproved and to be wrong in certain places. To understand that it's not a drudgery to be found out errant. We all err. The greater joy is to come to the Word of God, submitting ourselves to the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. And to have new life in seeing what God has actually spoken to the saints throughout the church age. You know, Paulus wasn't immune to this. No preacher who comes to the pulpit as a young individual to proclaim and to herald the good news of the gospel ever comes fully equipped. I think I, I, I will have to thank LifePoint Baptist Church for the first maybe thousand, two thousand years for putting up with me for the first probably 20 years of my ministry. And I'm eight years in. Because we, we, we have to grow. I have to have room. I promise you, one of my professors in college said, if I had my way, we'd keep you guys for 20 years before we let you out there. And I thought, he's such an idiot. First year in, I thought, man, he's such an idiot for not following through on his plan. He'd still be back there. <laughs> Apollos wasn't immune to needing to be corrected in his convictions and probably heterodox position and guarded from heresy. We have this in Acts chapter 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught according accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They corrected this brother. And you know what he did? He submitted his life to the authority of the apostles and prophets. And you know what, what came from that? A more fruitful ministry. There's something more dangerous than being wrong. And it's being stubborn. It's being unwilling to heed the word of God. If you're in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s and God reveals something to you, that you've never seen before, or maybe He reveals something's true to you that for years you have repudiated and said is wrong. When the Spirit of God reveals to you 
that something is true. Beloved, don't fight with it. Be thankful that the Spirit of God is ever active in our lives to bring us to a knowledge of an understanding of what His apostles and prophets has written throughout our lifetime. I hope that you find me in my 80s, maybe 90s. Boy, I'll be a cranky 90-year-old. Sobbing over the misunderstandings I've had of Scripture. I think it was Count Zinfendorf that said, preach the gospel, die. And be forgotten. God is constantly working on us. Beloved, this one text begs us to be a theological church indwelled by the Spirit, experiencing the fullness of fellowship with God. We will not get there apart from doctrine. We will not get there apart from the work of the Spirit. We have to have both. So would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we come submitting ourselves to your word We're so thankful that you sent these men, apostles and prophets, who suffered so bravely for the faith, who defended it, who gave their lives for it, who have been so misunderstood, misquoted. Father, we desire to be humble men and women, not just holding on to a position because it attaches to a label, but having your word plainly revealed to us through the working of your spirit. Father, we're dependent upon you as a church. We don't depend on pastors. We don't depend on individuals. We depend on your spirit. And then we get the joy of living in the body of Christ. Father, would you in increasing measure in this coming year make us a church that hold our labels loosely, but your word tightly. And might we